So this morning we're going to start a new series, and the series is called Lessons from the Desert. And this morning in particular is called The Tapestry and Sovereignty. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at what God is doing in some books that we normally try to avoid. So would you join me in prayer as we get started? Father, this should be fun. Uh, it seemed to connect very well in the first service with something you were already doing in people's lives. I pray that would be true here as well. And uh, we seek you for that in your name. Speak with us. Spend time with us. Talk to us. We give you freedom. Uh, we open it up to you. This is your church. We're your sons and daughters. You have a right to talk, and we want to give you that ability and option. So have at it, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So I was thinking about as we head towards Easter... Um, you know, what to do for a series. You, you try to always... Get, and I was coming up really blank. And then I was out at camp speaking at Adelphia. And of course, I'm reading through the Bible like you guys are. And so I'm in that wonderful stretch of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? And, uh, and I just kind of sensed the Lord say, well, why don't you do those books? And I thought, because they're not the most favorite books of everybody uh, around, all right? Um, I know you're so thrilled to get through those lists, right? In some of those books, right? You ever just start reading going, am I ever going to get out of here? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. But I also realize that there's some um, incredible um, lessons, real lessons that we can learn that we'll all face. And the context for these books is so unique because the context is the desert. If you look at that picture up on the screen, the desert is a strange place to find life or abundance. You don't normally think of that uh, there, but that's exactly what happens. The desert is a place of testing, a place uniquely used by God to build into Israel, and I want to say extrapolate out as us as well. Uh, kingdom things that otherwise would not be developed. And so sometimes we wind up there on purpose, sometimes God takes us there. And we're going to look at this. Uh, you say, really? The desert? I mean, seriously? And I want to suggest to you that God has used the desert a lot uh, in Scripture for training of some of his key leaders. You'll recognize these. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, and then he spent another 40, year, 40 years taking Israel through it. So 80 years total of his life, he lived to be 120, 80 of it uh, was spent in the desert. David spent a significant amount of time in the desert evading King Saul. Uh, John the Baptist called the desert his home. Remember, he ate locusts and wild honey and wore camel's hair, but he lived out in the desert. And let's not forget that Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tested for 40 days. Some of the more interesting writings, if you are interested in reading some of the old writings in Christianity way back in the beginning, some of the more interesting ones are from the Desert Fathers. And the Desert Fathers were people who uh, actually went out into the desert to get away from the distractions of life so that they could hear from God. And you can Google the Desert Fathers and uh, some of it's really profound and some of it's really weird. I'll just give you an insight on that. Um, but they, they did that on purpose. They wanted to be stripped of daily distractions and the allurements of life. And is life allured any of us? Right. And they wanted to try and escape that, be able to give Jesus their full attention. Now, here's the thing about that. Most of us do not deliberately go in the desert unless it's the middle of winter in February and rainy and cold, and then we go to Arizona, right? 
And we think, ah, desert, that's 85, awesome, beautiful. And um, we think of the desert as a neat place. But if you, I, uh, if you are aware of the desert, the desert can be incredibly punishing, incredibly hot, uh, incredibly sterile uh, for a lot of it. And so God uses the desert to train us. Now, most of us don't go to the route that I'll go to the desert deliberately. We call these desert experiences, or uh, other authors have called them the dark night of the soul. And we don't normally pick those. We don't stand in a line and go, ooh, 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 pick me, pick me, right? Uh, usually what happens is uh, they get chosen for us. We're cruising along in life. We're on solid pavement. Um, we got everything going our way, and the next thing we know we're buried up into our axles in sand and can't figure out what hit. And when we're sitting there for the first few moments trying to come to our senses of what happened, we ask questions like, how in the world did I get stuck here? How in the world do I get out of here? One of the lessons of the desert is that the more you struggle, the stucker you get. Is stucker a word? Well, it is now, okay? Mitchell's English translation, collegiate version. The more you struggle, the stucker you get. What you have to learn is to live in it and not fight it. And that's a hard thing for us to do because we don't think we're supposed to be there in the first place. Of Moses, author Howard Butts says this, he was in the desert stripped of every refinement and privilege that he had ever known left and reduced to herding sheep. Now when we read that, we think, oh, that couldn't have been too bad. At least he was having fun. No, no, no. You have to understand, Moses was at the echelon, the pinnacle of Egyptian society. Everything that was available to the leading rulers was Moses's. And remember in the story of Genesis, remember Joseph, that he wasn't able to eat with his brothers because his brothers were what? Shepherds. And that was an abomination to the Egyptians. Why? Because the nobodies did that. The nothings did that. The no accounts did that. That was an icky, stinky job that lowlifes did. That wasn't a job for the elite. That wasn't a job for the privileged, the polished. So when you take where Moses came from and then realize he was reduced to the desert to herding sheep, you realize he had hit the bottom. Howard says that he had sand in his eyes, sand in his shoes, and sand in his soul. Right? It was an icky place. Get me out of here. And there's no way to get out. Writer Mark Altogi says that God uses the desert experiences in our lives for two things. Number one, to humble us. Number two, to reveal what's in our hearts. But how do we, or how did we, get into the desert? I said that for most of us, it's God's sovereign hand that gets us there. In other words, He takes us there. And then the question is, if God brought me here, can, can, he, can He be trusted? Is His motive and method trustworthy? Let's look at a brief history of the Old Testament. The, the backdrop, or the um, tapestry, if you will, of the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the book of Exodus. So just like on the stage, the black curtain forms the tapestry for the stage, Exodus forms the tapestry for Leviticus, Numbers, 
in Deuteronomy. It's the backdrop. Let's just do a brief survey where we the, go. There. Here's, uh, we'll actually start in Genesis. God calls Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees and uh, his father Terah and his nephew Lot. And they go up to Haran. In Haran, Terah dies. That wasn't part of the script. We don't often think about that. Abraham had to do the rest of the journey without his dad. Some of us have lost our dads. We know what that's like. And from there, God says, I want you to depart from here because I'm going to make a great nation of you. I am going to uh, be, build a people out of you that will become great and numerous. And so Abraham treks and he comes down, uh, heads through Jerusalem, Hebron, Beersheba, and then later we know with Isaac and Jacob, then there's the story of Joseph, and they wind up, due to famine, they wind up in Egypt. Now Egypt is often pictured as that iron-smelting furnace that um, pressured them in slavery. But you have to remember, when they first got there, this is a picture of lower Egypt, they were put in the land of Goshen. Good gracious, land of Goshen. You ever heard that saying before? The old guys used to say that. That's where that came from. And Goshen was actually a place of bounty. It was actually a place of goodness. It was actually a place where they flourished. So in the beginning, Egypt was a wonderful place. It was fabulous for them. Uh, Joseph had enormous prestige, probably more than even Pharaoh himself. And so they were held in high esteem. They were given Goshen the best of the land. But then it turned because later scripture tells us what? There was a Pharaoh that arose that knew not Joseph, right? And so suddenly the tables were turned and that which had been good, that which had been rich and bountiful suddenly now turns and it becomes a trap and it becomes a place of slavery. And you know that story, right? And they are, are slavery crying out, crying out to God, trying to get rescued. And in the midst of that, God comes to rescue them. Here's a picture of the locust because that's, we're talking about the ten plagues. God raises up a guy named Moses, takes his brother Aaron, brings him in, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And so God begins a plague. We're not going to... I just picked this because this was cool. Uh, Margaret went, oh, ick, look at this one. I said, cool. That's the difference between a guy and a gal. Ick, cool, right? And uh, this is one of the t plagues, the plagues of locusts. We won't go through all ten. But each of those are designed to counter uh, an Egyptian god. They had many gods. And to reveal that the Lord God, the sovereign God of the universe, was different than the gods they were worshiping. And some important things began to happen. First of all, God began to distinguish. First of all, he raised up Moses and Aaron. And that story in and of itself is fascinating because Moses said to God, what? I can't do it. You can't send me. I have fumbling lips, right? I stutter. Go send somebody else. God says, you got a brother. Go grab him. So he grabs Aaron. And if you watch that story, they go in. Aaron's the prophet. Moses looks like God. And so Aaron does the talking in the beginning of the story. Then Aaron talks. Moses ad-libs a little bit. And then Aaron talks and Moses talks. And by the end, Moses is controlling the whole thing. What did God know in the beginning? He was always capable of it. So if you tell God, I'm not capable of it, he knows something about you that you don't know. He knows what you're capable of. And God began to distinguish Moses in this process. Then God began to claim. 
These are my people. Let my children go. They need to go out in the desert and worship me. And then he began to separate through the course of these plagues. He began to separate because a number of the plagues happened only to the Egyptians and not in the land of Goshen. And it became really obvious, really clear, quickly, that there was a distinguishing between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And he began to separate that out. And then he began to prepare them. He told them what to do, how to get ready. He did this whole thing called the Passover. And they had their belts and their tunics tucked in their belt, ready to go at a moment's notice. They were eating unleavened bread. And they were to be ready on signal to break and to leave the country. And then God began to lead in a very unique way. Uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And this, this pillar led them. And it led them where they were going out. And as they came to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh grieved over what he had lost and came back to try and take it, that pillar moved behind them and kept them apart. And they were crying, now what do we do? We're going to die. And, and Moses says, don't worry. You will never see these Egyptians again. And that leads us to this particular picture. There we are, Charlton Hessen walking through. All right? God did something that has never been done on the face or the history of the earth. The parting of the Red Sea. It says Israel walked through on dry ground and not so for the Egyptians for their wheels got stuck in the mire. And when they got to the other side, then the waters closed back over and the waters came on top of the Egyptians. And what God had said would prove true, for they never saw the Egyptians again. This is an Old Testament object lesson of a New Testament picture of salvation. And the idea is you're going from the world to the kingdom of God. And notice in this, you can't go halfway. Right? You can't get in the middle and then stop and say, gee, I'm not sure, should do I want to be in Egypt or do I want to be in the promised land? Which, which of the two do I want to be? And I think I'll sit here in the middle. There's no middle offered. You're either in Egypt or you're in the promised land. And the same is true of salvation. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and say, I'm okay here. You're going to get ripped apart. Those of us who've tried that know that's a lousy deal. It does not work well. If you, you voice you're of the kingdom, but your heart's really of the world, you're a mess. doesn't work. Christian life doesn't work. Then you sit in church and get really angry because it looks like God's speaking to everybody else but you. Right? Ever had that experience? Get uh, testimony envy because you could tell God's talking to other people and you don't hear anything? This is an all-in move. It's all the eggs in the basket. A total move of faith and obedience. They had to go all the way to the other side. But what a rescue. What a rescue. I mean, could you imagine? Have you ever thought of what it was like to be there walking through that? I have. I'm just like, I, when I get to heaven, I want God to replay the video. Could we rewind that and watch that again? I would love to see the actual video. We have images or ideas of what it looked like. I would love to see the actual DVD on that. Wouldn't that be something God just flashed out on the screen and said, here's how it really worked. Whoa, right? I mean, what a salvation. It's a better than a million to one odds. Right? And, and there's songs about it, right? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider fell into the sea. And if you're in junior high camp, they go ker plop. 
right? I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Horse and the rider fell into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my shield, has now become my victory. The Lord, my God, my strength, my shield, has now become my victory. I will sing up. Right? That'll be in your head all day. Awesome. Here's the thing. They sang it. They didn't just sit there and go, oh, that was so cool. Okay? They sang it. Check out Exodus. 15, they sang that song. And notice one very important little detail in this whole story. That when the waters came back and the waters came down, there was not the option to go back. God told them, you will never go back that way again. Don't go back to Egypt. That's not the place where you belong. You belong in the promised land. It's a very similar to Jesus saying, you don't belong here. You belong in heaven with me. Right? As permanent as it was for the Egyptians, it was just as permanent for Israel. They were commanded never to go back that way again. And then the question is, all right, God has done this incredible, miraculous work. Wow! And as a result of that incredible, miraculous salvation experience, where did it get them? Right back to slide one. The desert. Smack dab in the middle of the desert. Not just any desert. Desert of Sinai. Just do some reading. Go up and read about the average daily temperatures in the desert. It's one of the most hostile, uh, one of the most forbidding, foreboding deserts in the world. There's a reason there's a not a lot there. Okay? Because it is a terrifying place to try and walk through. Everything there wants to stick you or bite you. Okay? Why is this important to us? Or how could this possibly even relate to us this morning or have any kind of practical relevance for us today? Well, I'd like to take you to the New Testament and show you why it does. In 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul says this, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, the stories that are recorded with Exodus being the tapestry in the backdrop, but the stories recorded in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are designed by God and used by Him as examples and were written down to warn us of the things we weren't supposed to do and the things we were supposed to do. Well, what kind of things? Well, if you go to the verses above it, it says this, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and go, got up to indulge in revelry. In other words, they made sex their God. Did anybody see any of that happen in our culture? Right? Then it goes on and says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. That's a good one. My wife will love that message. And uh, if anybody else does wants to show up, it'll be a great one. We're going to talk about snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. If you go to the verse after that, it says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This verse right here that you see on the screen is put in the context of the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you don't understand that, you miss the context of this verse and what Paul's pulling from. He's saying those things that happened back there in the desert, those things that Israel faltered in, were recorded so that you would know how to do it differently and not do the same thing when you hit your desert experience or your dark night of the soul. And so as we're looking, we're going to go through these three books. Let me give you just a brief, quick survey. Leviticus, right? If you do not understand that Leviticus is about purity and holiness, you will not understand the book. The whole book is about being set apart. In the book, I listed about 15 things that God said, this is set apart, this is set apart, this is set apart, this is how this is set apart, this is set apart. And, and God was very careful to not transfer holiness to unholy things. He was trying to draw a distinction between him and the people. All right? And so Leviticus is all about uh, being set apart in holiness. Numbers is all about authority and obedience. This is the story of Korah and Dathan and Abiram and rebellion in the camp. And what happened as a result of this? This is a story of Miriam and Aaron actually turning against their own brother. This is the story of Balak and uh, the cursings that went on. And this is the story of how it worked out in the camp while they were walking through the desert together. When they weren't coming across water, when they weren't having the food that they wanted, what kind of issues kicked up for them? And the Bible says those issues are exactly our issues. And then... The book of Deuteronomy is all about love and endurance. Love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and strength. That's quoted in the New Testament. It comes out of Deuteronomy. And it's about endurance. You are to stay steadfast to the Lord your God. And you are to never turn towards those evil things again. And so we're going to take a look at those three books. I'll give you the messages next week. I want to wrap up this morning with this. Mark chapter 1 It's talking about the time that Jesus went out into the desert. It says that once the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that led Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that leads us. The Holy Spirit sent him, Jesus, out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Writer Boyd Bailey, uh, quoting this verse, says this, Sometimes the Holy Spirit sends you into a desert experience. The purpose of this hard time is not punishment, but purity. Let me say that again. Boyd writes, Bailey writes, that the purpose of this hard time is not punishment, but purity. God wants to purify your faith and grow your dependence on Him. Naturally, the enemy does not sit still when he senses someone has escaped eternity's cover. He does, however, miss the principle that God uses all things for his good, even your enemies. Times of trial are full of temptation from Satan, for he appeals to your pride and your physical appetite and your spiritual vulnerability. He wants to bring you down when you're at your weakest. He sees you alone and ready for the kill, and Satan smells blood. But the blood he smells is not your demise, it's actually your salvation. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that covers you during this crisis time in your desert life. 
Your desert experience may involve a child who's away from God and away from home. It may be that your health is failing quickly and you're on the fast track to heaven's gates. Your desert experience may encompass loneliness and a Lord that does not seem to answer prayer. Heaven may be silent during this time of stress and distress. Your marriage may be in the ditch or even on the way to the divorce court. So he writes, be careful not to make a dumb decision during your desert time. He will carry you through. His angels are not passive to your plight, but present to minister to your needs. Your heavenly Father is sending reinforcements for your faith. So stay immersed in the word of God because his word is your anchor during this troubling time. The promises of God rain down like manna during desolate desert times. Feed your soul with the scripture and you'll have strength to make it through this time of turmoil. Look to the Lord for he cares. He is willing to make you whole and walk with you through this desert of distress. Do not attempt to gut it out without God or other people. And lastly, you'll be stronger as a result of this faith-stretching situation. What was meant to drive you away from God will draw you closer. The Holy Spirit knows better than you what you need to become more like Jesus in your faith and in your deeds. This desert experience will pass, so don't waste this pain and discomfort, but use it to go deep with the divine. Turn the tables with trust, for your faithfulness inspires others to remain faithful. The irrigation of God's love, grace, and forgiveness will flood your desert with a new life and will be beautiful to behold. Jesus creates a paradise of character where once existed a desert of temptation. The Bible says, Then the lame will leap like the deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 35. Come and join me over the next several weeks as we walk in the desert and hear from God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thanks for this morning and thanks for this particular message and the series and what you brought me to. And I pray it's going to be something that is tremendous that will open things up. But Lord, I also recognize many of us are in desert experiences or we've been through them or we can see it coming. And Lord, most of us do not volunteer for that readily. Would you allow us to trust you in whatever state we're in? And Lord, may these series of messages be great encouragements for us in the world we live in and the world that you are still sovereign in. And we ask this in your name. Amen.